This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Anna Funder, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you so much. Now, this is almost like a dream come true for me. Oh, that's so sweet. Seriously. <laughs> Seriously. Um, I don't think you need much introduction, but I will introduce you for those that have never heard of her. You've been under a rock. Um, Anna Fonda is one of Australia's most acclaimed writers. She grew up in Melbourne and Paris and worked for the Australian government as a human rights lawyer before turning to writing full-time in the late 90s. Anna's first book, Stasi Land, was published in 2003 and tells the stories of people who heroically resisted the communist dictatorship of East Germany and of the people who worked for its secret police, the Stasi. Stasi Land was, critically acclaimed, was a critically acclaimed bestseller, I think it's still selling, winning the Samuel Johnson Award and being shortlisted for many others. And a second book, All That I Am, won the Mars Franklin Prize in 2012. Anna is here to talk to us about both books, uh, Stasi Land, which was rejacketed in June for the first time since its release. Wow. I know. I was really thrilled about that. Mm. Um, I think it looks fantastic. And I love the sense of, I mean, they did such a great job with this cover. I think they offered me about 20 different covers. You know, yeah. it was an incredibly lovely publishing experience. Not all publishing experiences are incredibly lovely. No, no, <laughs> they're not. <laughs> and the French cover actually has um, a person, like a young woman, I think it is, looking through Venetian blinds. And I always thought that's so clever because Stasiland is about being spied on. Mm. And having your privacy invaded. And also it's about the people who did that spying. So with a cover like that, you don't know whether the eye is looking at you because it's doing the spying or whether the person is being spied on and they're looking out of their blinds to see who's looking at them. And this cover reflects some of that. I, th mm. I just think it's so clever. I think you're clever. I think that the book has... It became a bestseller but ha has held its own over the years because your writing style, even though it's non-fiction, it, it, it presents in a story, doesn't it? Yeah, I understand things best in story. Yeah. You know, I've tried other ways. I try. I was briefly quite a bad lawyer. You know, I don't – well, even in the law you have to understand things in story. People understand things in story. They do. And even if you're looking at the world and writing nonfiction, you have to, when people say they shape it, what you're doing is just finding a beginning to this particular story that you're telling and an end. Obviously, there is no beginning. It goes back forever yeah. in time. It just depends when you choose that slice of life or that particular story. So I had to, I had to choose those stories that the people were telling me. And then I had to, I wanted to sort of give a sense of what it was like to be in Berlin as East and West Germany, East and West Berlin came back together again. And the city was so divided with the wall through it and each side was so different from the other. And it was like walking in this, I knew it would be temporary too, we were walking in this very strange divided universe and being able to be on either side of it. And I wanted to describe Berlin in the 90s, which was when I was working on the book then. So that meant the book had to have a present tense. I was the only person to tell that present tense. Yeah. That meant that I kind of thought, oh, you know, bugger, I have to be in this book. But it also allowed me to write a kind of um, reaction shot. So when I'm talking to Frau Paul, whose baby was left on the wrong side of the wall, or to Miriam, who tried to climb it, or to Klaus Renft, the rock star, or whoever, I can describe 
what it felt like to sit there and be a kind of secondhand witness to those people who were who had really experienced history in their lives. And so because I think, yeah, it is amazing because I think your voice is important because you're the observer. You're almost the the eyes looking at them and where they're at in their lives. But before we get to that, I want to know how this career started of yours. Like tell me from the beginning. I, I just want to know how the idea came about. For Stasiland in particular? Yes, well, for writing as well. Um, I'm going to make this sound like a disease, but I don't think that you really choose to be a writer. Mm. I think that some, I mean, mm. some people do and they're probably more in, in control of it um, or more professional about it or something. But I, when I was really small, I started, we lived in America and then I went and started school in France and my mother was a psychologist. She was actually a child psychologist. The irony of that is going to make it so clear in the story <laughs> that I'm telling. But she, uh, so I hadn't, it was my first day at school and she thought, oh. You could better, speak French. No, 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 not a word. And I was five and a half, six, I think. And she just thought, oh, it's probably will just be a cause of anxiety if I warn her that not only is she going off to big school, but she won't understand a word. So she didn't say anything. And I went off to school that day. And when I came home, she had the good grace later to say, you know, I was pretty nervous about asking you how your day was. And she asked me how my day was. And I just said, fine. And that was all I said to her. <laughs> I wasn't going to tell her anything else. But I think that... Um, I was already reading in English. But, and so Tell I, me, I just want to know what that experience is like because I started school um, here in Glebe um, and I couldn't speak English either. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My parents are Lebanese and we spoke Arabic at home and we, even though I was born here, we'd just come back from another trip and then we went to school and I don't remember not knowing how to speak English. I, I, I kind of, I, I do, there are moments where, you know, language was a barrier, but mainly I just walked into that classroom and I talked to it. Do you, do you think kids do that? Um, yeah, I think they do, but I do remember what it was like not to speak it. And I remember, because I was pretty wordy in English, yes. I remember knowing that uh, I had to learn to speak French and I had to learn to speak it quickly. Real quick. And that, that also that language was this kind of magic curtain, uh, because people in France and in French express things differently from how yeah. we express them. And there's a lot more, um, emotional range. You know, we are Anglo and repressed for a reason because we're Anglo and repressed. <laughs> And I think that just being aware of that, even if you can't put that into words, that there are these, there's an Anglo world and there's a and there's a French world, and language is is the key and the power, meant that I was, even if I wasn't already predisposed to it, I was very interested in language from from when I was about six and de- declared that I was going to be a writer from then. And back to the language. At what point do you think you were speaking French? Look, they it's not my long. Family says about six months. Yeah, yeah. but you know it was kitty French too. So yeah. I, I go back and I know that um, I, I was back recently, and I, you know, I can function, but I would, I need a bit of time to. I need to. I really <laughs> need, need to, to sort of grow myself. up my French. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you were interested in language then, and interested obviously as a reader. Um, and you think you knew then that you were going to be a writer? Yeah, I used to write lots of bad poetry, you know, kitty yeah. poetry and stories and all that kind of thing. Yeah. We had the Australian writer in here recently uh, for a podcast, Holly Ringland, and she told me that she was when she was in year four, she wrote to an agent saying, look out for me, I'll be writing a book <laughs> one day. <laughs> Don't you love that? <laughs> be warned. Be warned, I'm coming. Uh, and she finally got there. Yeah, that's year. great. That's right, that's great. Okay. Okay, so then how did Stasi Land come about? I know that you studied law. Yes, I studied law, but also English literature and German and French at the university. And um, part of my undergrad in the late 80s, I went to Berlin and I studied at the Free University in Berlin. So that was in West Berlin and the war was still up. And uh, I fell into a group of 
um, former East German writers and painters who had been kicked out of East Germany, just really totally by accident. And they were about a generation older than me. And we, I had a lot to do with them and we would be sitting, you know, in a cafe in West Berlin. So they were kicked out of East to West. Did that happen a lot? A lot. So of all the Eastern Bloc countries, um, East Germany was the only one where there was a West to it. So they could kick out their dissidents, artists and writers, and they did. Uh, or they could sell them. There was also a trade for hard Western currency in prisoners. So both of those things happened. And these people... What, to I use them for labour? Uh, no. So people who the East were imprisoning, who uh, could be bought free by the West. So West Germany might buy... So for our poor... Why? Why? Um, because the theory was that in, on the West German side, that they didn't really recognize constitutionally East Germany. So they just said, they're Germans the same as us and they have a right to live with us. And if we have to pay to get them out, we will. Okay, got it. So, but there were different prices. If you were a major dissident or a kind of quasi rock star or something, the East Germans would charge more for you than if you were a housewife like (laughs) Frau Paul. Um, and there was a whole trade in human beings between East and West. Yes. Right. Run by East German lawyers, obviously at the behest of the Politburo. Right. But the people that I knew were, um, had been kicked out because one ran an underground literary magazine called the Mikado. Others were a very famous painter actually called Pink, A.R. Pink, who drew a lot on, um, or was inspired by Aboriginal, Aboriginal painting to some extent. Anyway, we would be sitting in a cafe. In 1988, in, um, which is such a long time ago, in yeah. West Berlin and in Kreuzberg, the wall was at the end of the street, you know, and I was so struck by the fact that this crazy geopolitical edifice that ran mm. through the city actually ran through these people's lives. And on the other side were their ex-wives, mothers, children, <laughs> friends, ex-lives, if you look at it like that. And I think that that, I think it also comes out of actually being interested in constitutional law and human rights law. I mean, what kind of terrible political situation do you have to have before you put a wall through a major city and divide a country? I mean, I know the obvious answers to this, but what mm. are the lived effects on human beings? Mm. And what I wonder if Trump's thinking about that at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> what are the lived I don't know, effects? The, the words Trump and yeah. thinking in yeah. the same sentence? Maybe not. Maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> Laughing, yeah. Maybe. Thinking, maybe not. And what are they? What Was that the fascination for yes, you? Yes, so I kept going back. I came back to Australia and I finished my degree in Melbourne, my degrees, and then I worked in, I did my articles and I worked in um, international law under the Keating administration in Canberra. And then I had a couple of fellowships to go back to Germany. So the wall had fallen in between. And I had to write up one of these fellowships. And the thing that most interested me was a story that I'd heard secondhand um, about someone, it was actually Miriam's story, or it led me to Miriam's story, of someone whose husband had died in Stasi custody and the Stasi had organised and orchestrated as well as spied upon the funeral of this dis- young dissident man who died in custody. And I just couldn't get that story out of my head. I just mm. couldn't get it out of my head. And so I gave up my job in Canberra, went to Melbourne, saved money for a year, got a small... um a small kind of creative writing award from the University of Melbourne, which was actually only half a creative writing award because Chloe Hooper and I shared it. Oh, there you go. There you go. But I was massively encouraged by that and then went back to Berlin and spent a year there and really uh, just went for it and found the Collecting stories. I want to know what your first impression of Germany was when the wall was down because you'd been there before and then after. Yes, well, it was really, I mean, I do talk about this a bit in the book. It was really like being, uh, you know, Rumor Garden's Secret Garden, that yes. book that everybody reads as a child. It really was a bit like going into this dystopian secret garden so that there was a place behind the wall that you'd never been allowed. You could do day trips from East Germany, from West Germany as a tourist, 
but you were you always were sort of shunted from place to place and knew that you were not talking to real people, people and not seeing the real place. So it was like having this world that my friends had described to me opened up and it was at once incredibly beautiful because in like West Berlin a lot of the um, parts of the city that were bombed out during the war were rebuilt very quickly in the 50s, 60s, 70s. So you have a lot of some good but some very ugly modern architecture. In the east there were big tower blocks but there were also still kind of quite to a 20-something-year-old's eye romantic-looking um, decrepit buildings, late 19th century buildings which still had, you know, shell holes in them and whatnot. Um, and I know that they were awful to live in, but they were very beautiful streetscapes, you know, yeah. and there was no advertising. Um, so it was this place. Was it of like you'd, you'd walked back in time? Yes, it was absolutely like walking back in time. And also it was as if a bell jar had been removed from a place where the people hadn't been able to travel and had been experimented on. You know, East Germany was an experiment in the sense that all socialism and communist regimes are like this, in trying to make a more equal world and trying to make people better in some way. trying seeing Forcibly people, better, though. Yes, and it doesn't ever work because it's a, it is to mistake really fundamental drivers and of, of people and the sorts of freedom that they need and the sorts of support that they need and not the kinds that were supplied there. But there were differences between East Germans and West Germans and those were interesting as well as the... In the built people? Environment. Yes, I think so. Like what? Um, if you live in a place where there's no... Uh, really no possibility of getting richer than anyone else. Material things, whilst in some senses they might be scarce, in another sense are just really not important. Mm. Um, if your rent and your travel is subsidised and you are always going to have a job, even if it's a do-nothing job, even if it's a job where there's no supplies to build whatever it is you're ostensibly building and it's ludicrous, or even if it's spying on other people or even if it's you know, working in a church group or in publishing where you know that 10 of your colleagues are spying on you, whatever it is, the sense of an, a completely non-materialistic culture has something. I know it's kind of terribly seductive and I know that it's bad, but it has something attractive about yeah. it. It really does mean that people don't spend their time... Um, I shopping. Know, ...getting manicures and shopping <laughs> yeah, and worrying right. about the coloured tiles in their house. Yeah. I, I wouldn't want to trade it for the materialism and its disadvantages that we have here. But there was something very fascinating to me about the price of equality yes. that I saw there and the tiny bit of freedom from really materialistic excess that we have. So, you know, it was it was fascinating. Yeah, I think that is really fascinating, isn't it? Because you have freedoms, you know, we're meant to be have certain freedoms, but, you know, we're really not. We're not that free, are we? Yes. We are we are sucked in the cycle of what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be purchasing. We're supposed to be buying land. We're supposed to be eating out. We're supposed to be drinking wine. You know, I often think about. That. I mean, I enjoy it thoroughly, but you do think about that, don't you? It's 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 a perceived freedom. I think there were no pressures like that. No, there but there were also, and so consequently, other things were important. Um, you know, certain kinds of. Literature was, were important and certain kinds of music were really important. Yeah. I mean, they are in German culture anyway. Yeah. So I'm, you know, they, do you know what, what you're, uh, what you're saying is reminding me of, um, when I lived in America much more recently in the last few years. And that's, you know, the land, the home of the brave and the land mm -hmm. of the free and all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, I noticed that they were, mm, they would hate me saying this, but much less free in some ways than we are, mainly because we have a public health system. That's right. So people, and because we can't be dismissed um, from one day to another, which all my friends could be, so if you lose your job, then you lose your health care, and that means your children have no health care. Yeah. And that is a kind of unfreedom that you can't imagine. Like I've just said it now, but what it is actually to live with the pressure of not being able to say, I'm being sexually harassed or this is really unfair or I don't want to do this or just to change jobs for some normal reason 
so much hangs on that, like the well-being and of your children in, in a very basic sense. I think the, yeah, the most dangerous companies in the world are the American health companies. Mm. They have tremendous power and they're very quiet about it, very quiet about it. I mean, we all talk about Apple and Google and how insidious they are, but I think the most is the insurance companies. I tormented a poor woman called Valerie who's who's on the phones in one of those health insurance companies. Every time I had to get, you know, an X-ray for one of my kids' ankles or some sort of medication or a mammogram and you would be there bargaining with them, even though we had ostensibly coverage, they'd say, oh, no, the vaccinations for the children will be a few hundred dollars. And she'd say, oh, no, ma'am, I'm so sorry. That's wellness, not illness, so it's not covered. I mean, it was Kafkaesque and it was Beckett. And it was crazy making, and I was totally covered. Mm. I mean, I and we call that freedom. And we call that freedom to choose. Yeah. So, yeah, for the issues of freedom and choice are so ever present in our lives. And Stasiland is just one extreme example of some of those things. I mean, you could write the same book today in America in some ways, you know. You could. A version. You could. Uh, I want to know were there differences in language when the wall came down? There were some differences in language. Um, so all words to do with the Führer, Hitler, mm. were banned in East Germany. So, but the word leader obviously has other um, uses. And, you know, um, Julia in the book told me that uh, if you wanted to get your driving license, which is a Führerschein, uh, it was actually called, they had to invent a whole yeah. other word for it. Um you know, a Lokführer was a, which is a train driver, was a, you know, some other complicated word. So there were those kinds of differences. Yeah, I was imagining, um, doing the research for this podcast and to talk to you, I was thinking about that and thinking that, you know, um, say for instance when the Lebanese or when the Greeks or uh, the Italians came to Australia, they brought the language of the time with them. Mm. And if you go back to those countries now, that language is very different. I mean, I notice it even myself. My, my relatives over there can hardly understand anything I'm saying. Right. And they're like, Wait, that word hasn't been used for 30 years. That's right. That's right, because that's where my parents came out. Uh, and I wondered whether that happened in Germany. It must have. Yes. I mean, in, in most East parts Germany. of the East, they could get Western television. There was only uh, a little okay. valley in near Dresden, which was called the Valley of the Clueless. where they didn't get Western television. I mean, it was dangerous until the 80s to have your television antenna turned towards the West and the Stasi would see that and then come and knock on your door. But um, so there was – they did get some of those words. But, yes, there were certain things that were were different. So tell me about living in – describe to me – so for those that that haven't read Stasi Land, and and I'm sure there's still a – a generation of, of young people that haven't read it yet and, and will. Describe to me who the Stasi is and what this book is about. So um, East Germany, uh, quite a lot of young people have read this poor things because it's on the HSC Oh, list. there we go. Fantastic. <laughs> I'm happy about that. I think mainly because less out of an interest in East Germany or the Cold War or the wall or anything like that. I think more because these are stories of, of people. very ordinary people. Yeah. Um, you know, a schoolgirl, a housewife, yes. an alcoholic rock star. You can relate to any of them. Yeah. And it's them just saying, no, I will not betray my neighbours and friends and family and I really don't care what you do to me. Yeah. I'm just, I just can't. And I think the really nub of this for me, the most important and interesting and humbling bit of uh, that I learnt, things that I learnt from it is that there really are a lot of people walking around today everywhere on the streets in the world who look completely ordinary but when pushed are actually absolutely morally uh, heroic and they will maintain their own integrity and we don't see it, but it is uh, everywhere. And I think it is something to completely celebrate. And I think it's the, it's one of the main things that keep democracy going is that sense of, um, when you get the feeling, uh oh, this isn't right. I'm being asked to do something that's not right. Mm. You're most likely correct. 
Mm. Yeah. And there are lots of people who think, oh, but I have to feed my family, get along with others, blah, blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Completely understandable. But there are lots of people who just go, nope. Yep. And it's them that we're relying on to keep us from tyranny at one end of things and all kinds of other injustice yeah. at another. So Stasiland is about East Germany and East Germany was a country that existed for 40 years from 49. So after the end of the war, Germany was defeated, it was flattened and the Russians went in and claimed the eastern part. But Berlin, the capital, was within that eastern part. So Berlin, the capital, was divided into uh, an eastern bit which had a wall all around it, and a western bit that was run by France and Britain and the US. So that was West. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Berlin, and that became a really interesting hip happening city with you know lots of people lived there nick cave lived yeah. there and david and bowie still lived is, there and, yeah yeah because you could get out of the draft in mm. west germany that was compulsory military service if you went to uh live in berlin and there were great universities there so there were a lot of young people there and nobody knew for 40 years till 1989 when the war came down nobody including the west german government and the west german intelligence service really knew what was going on in East Germany in a similar way to nobody really knows what's going on in North Korea. Yeah. And it was a country that called itself the German Democratic Republic and it said, we are communist, we're anti-fascist, we're founded by anti-fascists. All the Nazi fascists, uh, it was almost like overnight, they never lived here, we never had anything to do with them and they all went to the West, which was completely not true. They were... Yeah. Nazi sympathizers and fascists and judges everywhere. Yeah. Um, and it was a communist regime. So there were elections, but they were all faked. There was only really ever one party that ever won, and it won 99.9% of the vote. So what that meant was, in order to stay in power, and it was the same men, almost literally the same men for the 40 years of the entire regime, so they were really old guys by the yeah. late 80s, the only way they could stay in power was by force and by spying on the population. So the Stasi was the secret service, like ACES and ACO combined, and their main task wasn't spying on other countries. Their main task was spying on their own population. So there That were, is a phenomenal task, though, isn't it? Yes. Well, in a world where there's no real journalism and no real newspapers and no Facebook and no nothing, it was the only way the government had of finding out what was going on. Yeah. So in every school, every class, every university, every factory, every pub, every apartment block, <laughs> uh, every gathering, every church, because there were small church groups, um, it was, there were informers there. So the Stasi were a kind of male organization and they were uniformed and they were kind of had militaristic ranks and whatnot. And then they ran uh, what were called unofficial collaborators, and they were the spies who were ordinary people like you and me, mm. who there were uh, almost 200,000 of them in a population of 17 million, and they were the people who you wouldn't know who if it was your sister or your colleague or your teacher, but they would be spying on you and reporting and back why? to the um, They believed they, in the regime? They, or why did they do it or why? Yeah, why did they do um, it? Well, sometimes they believed in the regime and sometimes they thought we are a small, beleaguered um, nation and everyone's out to get us and the West Germans hate us and um, 
we have the right idea. We want people to be more equal. Um, there's no prostitution here. There's no drug addiction. There's no capitalists exploiting other people. Um, and we believe in that. But mostly it was fear. So right. really it was fear and people were blackmailed into it often. Uh, you know, if you don't report to me on what's going on in the kids in your classroom, uh, your children themselves will have to drop out of school. Uh, or, um, you know, uh, your husband would lose their job and there was no unemployment, so losing your job meant that you kind of fell off the planet there. Um, and also I think there was some sort of more darker human motivations where people like to be part of a powerful group mm. and they like to, I call it in the book, The Psychology of the Mistress, which is mm. probably being a bit hard on mistresses, but people who want to have a secret and internally, quietly lord it over someone else because you know something that they don't. Mm. I think they also wanted to feel that they were part of uh part of a powerful group and therefore that they might not themselves be harmed by the Stasi for whom they were working. That was a false sense of security. So I went and talked to people, four, four main people, characters who resisted the Stasi, and then I thought, well, I better go and talk to some Stasi people themselves and see what that was like. And they were very interesting and nuanced stories among the Stasi men themselves of what their motivations were for... Um, working with, as they called it, the firm. Yeah, wow. Uh, so tell me about the characters in the book um, and tell me how you found them. Well, there are the first character I, I found is a woman whose name is um, Miriam Weber in the book and she, I went, I walked in uh, to an exhibition in Leipzig which was run by the Citizens' Rights Committee and they were the group of protesters, or they, they had come out of the group of protesters who were protesting every Monday peacefully with candles through the streets of Leipzig in 1989. And so they were protesting when it was dangerous to protest, when there were a lot of Stasi in the streets. In the middle of that year... Um, Tiananmen Square happened, so there were similar protests for democracy uh, in a communist dictatorship and the Chinese just went in with tanks and killed protesters, shot yes, them. Yes, I remember. Uh, but the Germans just kept going and nobody really knew how it was going to end. It ended miraculously, peacefully, and out of that group of protesters came a group called the Citizens' Rights Committee and the first thing that they did was to storm the headquarters of the Leipzig Stasi and that's a building called the Hundenecke, the round corner in Leipzig and that was the focus of a great deal of um, hatred really because it was from that building that they were spied on um, that their stolen biographies, if you like, were written uh, and files on them were kept and people would disappear into that building and never reappear. So they stormed the building in um, the January after the December when the wall fell and um, when I went back there, they had set up inside the Stasi headquarters the their exhibition of what it had been like um, and so there were rooms where prisoners had been held and there were rooms full of kind of fake moustaches and glue and cameras that fitted into a handbag or my favourite one that I saw, this is all the Stasi disguises to spy on yeah. people in the demonstrations and to spy on people in the houses. There were cameras in pot plants, there was camera in a fake bit of wood that would be out in the woods somewhere. My favourite was a camera in a false navel that you could put, so you could put this false fat stomach on <laughs> and then have one of the, one of the buttons kind of bursting open and the, the navel would be <laughs> winking wow. at you, spying on you. Anyway, there was a wonderful woman who ran that museum who's still alive and her name was Frau Holitzer and I just got talking to her and in a very, so I was, you know, 29 or 30 or something and she was kind of a motherly figure in very, very beautiful face, looked just to me like out of a fairy tale from Central Europe and she was talking to me about what happened and I said, well, uh, you know, I'd and then she said, oh, you want to write, you want to write, you want a story. Look, I think I know someone who knows someone who, um, uh, yeah, whose husband died in custody and 
the Stasi organised the funeral. Uh, and I said, oh, I'd like to talk to her. And so yeah. then she put me in touch with Miriam. And Miriam's story really was one of those exciting, um, incredible moments where someone's telling you a story and she hadn't really told it before, even though what had happened to Charlie had happened 10 years earlier in the 70s. And so it had this kind of thrill to it for her and risk to it for her as well. That in, she, yes. I mean, obviously she, she told her family and the family knew, but she hadn't really told anybody outside. So she was putting together in a kind of beginning, middle and end way this amazing story of her young husband in his 20s being taken off the streets when there was a protest in the 70s and never being heard from or seen again. And But that was the story that I kind of went to her to get. But where she started it was right back in her teenage years when she had, with a friend, a school friend, protested by making little leaflets with a letter set set um, and she was protesting about the um, the authorities in Leipzig had pulled down one of the very beautiful old churches with no consultation. And she and her friend thought, oh, that's really terrible. And it was 68, I think. And they put up all these leaflets around town and then the Stasi just came down on them, questioned all of their classmates um, and eventually got those two girls, Ursula and Miriam, and separated them and then did that trick where they say she's confessed mm. so you might as well blah blah uh and then she was facing prison mm. as a 16 year old so she then told me the whole story of her interrogation and the crazy people who interrogated her and what that was like she was an amazing storyteller and then she got out on remand and she just thought to herself i'm not going to spend my life in jail in this country and she'd never really been out of leipzig and she was tiny and very, very kind of delicate looking. She looked like a kind of dark Mia Farrow sort of character, really slight. Um, and she got on a train and went to Berlin. It was New Year's Eve 1968 and she tried to climb the Berlin Wall. And that was a story that she told me to start with before we even got to ha Charlie and what happened to him. So I had... She really nearly made it across and I have to leave it for people to read it at mm -hmm. what that happened. But um, I came, I got the train back after talking to, I stayed at um, Frau Hollitz's house because the other thing about East Germans was because there were no real hotels or anything and because everybody was kind of equal, at the end of talking to Frau Hollitzer in the former Stasi offices where she was then running the museum, so they went from secret service agency to museum overnight with all the same exhibits, if you know, it was so mm. amazing. And she, I, I said to her, can you recommend somewhere for me to stay? Kind of really naively because I thought there must be some sort of... And you hadn't booked anything, obviously. It was sort of before, kind of slightly before internet, really. <laughs> like we're talking 90... Yeah, but I think people were using phones, not rocking up in a city with nowhere to sleep. Mm, maybe, mm. I can't quite remember the details of that. Maybe I thought I was going to get the train back or something. And she just said to me, oh, stay at my place. So yeah. that was a really typical thing as well. So I stayed with yeah. her and her husband, who's a beautiful man. Do you think? Do you think that being spied on and being watched alters behaviour fundamentally, even if we don't think it does? I think it must. Yeah, I think it it must, and uh, it's a very tricky thing. I think that knowing that you're being spied on. Um, means that you will not do certain things that you might otherwise do uh, or not say certain things that you might otherwise say. And this is a live issue for us. Yeah. So it acts as a dampener on creativity or on speech. Because um, I mean, you, you have a look at the UK, and I'm not saying it's the same extent, or England, and that whole city is surveillance now. Everybody is watched all of the time. I think it's one thing if you know you're being watched yes. and you're in the street. So you don't jaywalk, you don't pick your nose, you don't pick yeah. pockets. <laughs> you know, and I think that the reason for that is 
to do with, you know, lower, there'll be safety. fewer sexual yeah. assaults and safety and all of those sorts of things. And it's a, it's a principle, my husband's an architect and urban designer, and it's a principle of, you know, safe streets that they are surveilled, that people look at their, can see at their front windows. Yeah. And so that people know that there's going to be safe. So, but actually to be spied on in your own yes. private space, yeah. um, and in your own intimate sphere of family or school or children. It's, it's just, un, I, I, it's unfathomable. Well, I think we need to fathom it and we need to think about it as a live issue now because obviously, you know, Alexa and Google and our televisions and our phones are kind of a a totally, you know, like bugs on us at all times and cameras on us at all times as well. Mm. And you really don't have to be paranoid. I'm not a paranoid person to know that that's the case. Mm. Um, You know, my daughter's had to put a bit of gaffer tape over the camera on her school laptop Mm. because there was a scandal where people were getting into them and the girls were being spied on Mm. just by having their laptops open, even if they were not on Mm. in their bedroom, so you can imagine. Oh, I was having a conversation with my niece about travel and I said, you know, I'm going to Spain next year and all of a sudden I'm getting all these emails about Spain and that was just through my laptop. So I had to find the mic and turn it off. Mm. Yeah. So, the, you know, sometimes people ask mm. me what would the stars you make of the world as it is now. Mm. They wouldn't need so many people. No, they wouldn't. And it's kind of, you know, it's like a dream come true mm. for them. Mm-hmm. It's horrendous. Mm. So for you, and, I, and I'm, I'm talking about your career, so you were, you're a writer. That w- Had you been writing short pieces, had you been writing anything else before you attempted to write Stasi Land? Oh, yes, I suppose, but nothing very significant. No. no. But you knew you were going to write this book. Yeah, I didn't know what it was going to be and I didn't know what form it would take or what... Um, mm. Or what tone? It's and a massive of, project. Uh, yeah, it's a massive project. I know it was really for a first book too. Yeah. yeah, and of course I was doing it all in German. So when I had to meet the stars after meeting, so that was Miriam, Miriam's story, and then um, there was Frau Paul, who was uh, a woman whose baby was born a few months before the wall was built, and the wall was built in Berlin overnight mm. on the 12th to the 13th of August in 61 and um, Torsten her baby was really ill and he was in a hospital on the western side of that wall and she was on the eastern side of the wall and when the wall went up overnight she could no longer get to her very ill baby in hospital because they rolled out barbed wire and they put sandbags mm. there before they divided the city so that story is a story of uh, of a woman who was a dental nurse, you know, and a very law-abiding um, housewife. That's all mm. she wanted to be, a housewife and a mother. And she ended up joining a group trying to dig in a tunnel under the wall to get to her baby. Mm. And they made... Well, she's a mother. Pardon? She's a mother. I know. I mean, there's just no other way, is there? There is nothing else that she could have done. No. And when I when I was writing it, I wasn't a mother. I was a long way off. Yeah. And I wrote it as, you know, I listened as hard as I could and I wrote it as she told it to me and with all the emotion that she told it to me. And she cried as she was telling me the story because she said, I, what, what happened after that was... Um, she was picked up off the street by the star. The, the, the tunnel escapade failed and she was picked up off the street in a big black car and taken into custody. Um, and she was asked in an interrogation, on a small stool in an interrogation room in Stasi custody to uh, act as bait in a trap to trap <gasps> the young Western student called Michael Hinze who was helping them from the West dig the tunnel. Uh, and then they, the Stasi said to her, if you just go, we will pop you into uh, the western part of the city, you can go and see your baby, and all you have to do is go for a walk in the street and arrange to meet Michael and all of the rest of it. And he, no, they said, and leave the rest of it all to us. And she was quite a simple woman in some ways, not particularly educated or anything, that she knew full well that leave the rest of it for us meant she was mm. being used in a, as bait in a trap to get this young man who for no reason other than it was the right thing to do was trying to help her get to her baby. And she refused. But 
and this is where she would break down every time, that meant that uh, she said, I, I couldn't have decided any other way, but what that meant was I decided against my son. So she decided she did what was right, but what was right was meant that her baby spent the first five years of his life, and he was quite disabled, physically disabled, growing up on a ward in a hospital in the late 60s in Germany with no parents. And both parents were then in jail in in the East. So that kind of story, and she, she wrote a little pamphlet about it afterwards that said, you know, the war went through my heart, and it definitely did. So there you have, in a sense... You know, that is evil. That is, you are looking at mm. evil being done mm. to several people mm. uh, and someone trying to withstand it when mm. there are no good choices. There was no good choice for her in that situation. Yeah. And her son, who was a lovely man who just died at the end of last year, actually, Tolston, very disabled physically, that could get around and live independently, he met his mother for the first time when he was six. She walked into the mm. hospital. Or he, he was delivered into the East and um, she walked into the hospital and they saw each other and he addressed her, we were talking about language, he addressed her with the formal Z. So she was a very brave, wonderful woman. Anyway, at the end of, and there were a couple of other characters including the very yeah. funny rock star Klaus Reinft and so on. But then I thought I'd better go and talk to some Stasi men as well. So I, they had completely disappeared. They were pretending they never existed. So they just went on normal life without, you know, acknowledging what they did and their participation and their history. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There were some, um, there was some checking. So if you were, had a job at the university or if you were in some areas of the public service, um, and to some extent in the police and the army, uh, and you had been working for the Stasi, they they tried to check those institutions and check what the pasts of people were, but a lot of people just lied and stayed on and then were outed later. Yes. You know, like a favourite radio host might be, was found to have been mm. an informant on their colleagues mm. and so on. So there was an attempt to kind of clean things up a bit, but mm. it didn't, it didn't. Really well, there were so many of them. Yeah. It was the deepest, most thorough penetration of surveillance. As I said, we don't know what the numbers are in North Korea, but the most thorough surveillance that people think has ever existed. So more than in Soviet Russia and more than under the Nazis. So under yeah. the Nazis there was one informer for every, I think, like 1,200 people. Right. And in East Germany um, it was one in seven people. Yeah, that's what I read. It's, it's not just the informing, it's the, like, it's the building of an organisation like that with that amount of people and that amount of information to process, but also that the, the, it was continuous and ongoing and, and the cruelty never stopped and people's appetite for cruelty never stops either. That's I such mean, an that's interesting what, thing to say. Isn't it? Yeah, it, that is a really interesting observation. I think possibly I didn't... You know, I was trying to look at that, but it, that's mm. like the sun. It's hard to look at it in the face, mm. people's appetite for cruelty. But that's definitely what we're looking at. We're looking mm. at an institutionalised appetite for cruelty and the this um, and, and then the resistance to it. So, yeah. A lot of people have said over the time, you know, I know some people have often misclassified your book, Stasi Land, and called it fiction. But I think for some people you can't digest the realness of it. <laughs> so that... You know, I yeah. think to call it fiction makes it more digestible, even though it's not. You just can't imagine that that really happened. Some of it is just so cruel. I know. I did start to write a novel. I wanted to write a novel and um, it was really terrible. It was just execrable. And I wanted to write it mainly around Miriam's story. And then I thought, you know, it was terrible in its own right, but I just thought it's also terrible because it's not the right thing to do. You know, I was living in Berlin and I could walk down the street and you can kind of tell all yeah. of these brill-creamed men, you know, in kind of bomber jackets and polyester trousers walking around looking disgruntled and self-important. And you knew that they yeah. were ex-Stasi and you knew that people who had been in the resistance or political prisoners or 
just quietly resisting were likely to have someone like that kind of in the queue behind them at the supermarket or whatever. So this thing was so live and so real that it didn't, I didn't feel it was right for me to make up some story about it. These stories were not being told and it, eventually when it finally belatedly dawned on me that what the only right thing to do was to represent these stories of resistance as 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 truthfully as possible mm. uh, mm, as, as a witness in a not mm. actually a witness but as a, as a yeah. reporter mm. now listen we have to sign off but i want to know are you writing something else what's <laughs> happening <laughs> Well, then I went back in time and I wrote All That I Am, which yes. is also from based on a friend of mine who was in the resistance to Hitler. Um, but I'm working uh, – and then I wrote a tiny little story, like a Chekhov type of um, homage to Chekhov called The Girl with the Dogs. And then, yeah, I am. I'm working on a novel and I'm working on uh, a kind of long non-fiction essay that is – I'm in a kind of spiralling death roll with it at the moment. It's getting out of hand. But it's a – Feminist essay, essentially. Right. We can't wait. <laughs> Thank you so much. You were everything I imagined you'd be. Oh, you're so welcome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Yay! If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.